It's Wednesday, June 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It all kicks off tonight in Miami. The battle for the Democratic nomination for president and hope for the party to defeat President Trump. The first debate of the season will feature 20 candidates across two days, with four of the top five candidates going at it on night two. But some Democratic bigwigs are scared of what might happen if it turns into a slugfest. Holly Otterbein, national political reporter for Politico, joins us for a debate preview. Next, after an uproar over migrant children being held in filthy conditions at a Border Patrol facility in Clint, Texas, John Sanders, the acting head of Customs and Border Protection, has resigned. This leaves another critical post without a permanent leader while many issues continue to pop up at the border. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for this and where we are with the $4.5 billion border aid bill. Finally, last week we were bombarded with news of the latest way our phones are damaging our bodies. Horns were growing out of young people's skulls. Because we leaned forward to look at our screens, bone spurs were developing at the back of people's heads. But the research didn't really support that, and there was a possible conflict of interest with one of the researchers. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science, joins us for why we all need to calm down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to be on the debate stage, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to share my vision. Joining us now is Holly Otterbein, national political reporter for Politico. We're going to get a little preview for the big Democratic debate that's going to be starting tonight, continuing into tomorrow. There are 20 candidates, so both nights are going to be packed with a lot of different things going on. But you spoke to nearly 20 Democratic elected officials, party chiefs, labor leaders, and there's some real concern about how this is all going to play out. They're really scared that a slugfest, when we're all done with this, is really going to produce a bruised candidate. What, what are they saying? They are scarred from the 2016 primary, which many of them saw as divisive, and they're worried that the debates this week could set off a race that is nastier than the one that we've seen so far. The candidates have really pulled their punches for the most part thus far in the primary, but a lot of party leaders, elected officials, operatives that I talked to said that they're worried that that could change this week. And there's a few different reasons for that. I totally agree that that is a worry. You don't want your own party doing the work of what the opposition is going to be doing. But I also feel like a slugfest could ramp up excitement, even though what we saw happen in 2016 on the Republican side, people were fighting with each other and calling each other names and everything. It really kept their message and a lot of the platform, which was very similar in the news cycle constantly. So to that effect, I kind of thought it might have helped them a little bit. So it could do the same here. But you're right. There's a lot of different reasons. What what are they pointing to? First, I think that some people, some Clinton supporters in particular, look at 2016 and think that Bernie was too aggressive toward Clinton in the debates and throughout the campaign, and that that actually led to her eventual loss to President Trump. On the other side, progressives would agree with you and say, you know, look at the Republican Party debate in 2015 and 2016. They were brutal, and Trump ended up winning. So, you know, let's have this debate. It'll be healthy for the party and the best, strongest candidate should emerge and we shouldn't save these attacks for the general election. So I think that's a very contested thing in the party. As for why these Democrats think that a slugfest could happen during the debates this week, there's several reasons. So 
First, we've seen an increasing willingness by Joe Biden's opponents to take him on. You know, again, candidates were really kind of pulling their punches for a long time. But then that changed really recently. And last week, after Biden made comments about working with segregationists in the U.S. Senate, Cory Booker criticized him, Kamala Harris criticized him, other candidates did as well, and they were pretty blunt about it. Bernie Sanders, of course, has been contrasting himself with Biden for a long time now, has criticized him for voting for the Iraq War and free trade deals. And then at the same time, you have moderate candidates going after progressives. So John Hickenlooper, after Bernie Sanders gave a speech on democratic socialism, he went and gave a speech about how democratic socialism was bad. And then you pile on to that the fact that a lot of these candidates, including senators and governors, are barely registering in the polls and are just desperate to have any kind of moment. And you kind of put all those things together, throw in Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang, and people wonder, <laughs> right. they worry there could be a real slugfest. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen during the debates. Senator Warren is pretty much all alone as a front runner on night one. So she kind of will benefit from that in that she can make her positions very clear without any interference from anybody else. But night two is going to be the big night. That's where the two top front runners, former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders, will be kind of duking it out. Everybody's expecting for them to trade barbs and really try to make some distinctions between them. Elizabeth Warren supporters think that it's great that she's going to be center stage on the first night and that she can have the debate revolve around her. But the downside is that debate might not get as much attention as the second night's debate, in which you have the front runners, you also have these wild card candidates, Yang Williamson, you got like a lot going on. The second night, yes, a lot of people expect that Bernie Sanders will draw distinctions with Joe Biden. He has previously. He's taken them on on things like the Iraq War, free trade deals, kind of middle ground policy that, that he's been attacking. I will say I, I talked to to Bernie Sanders' campaign manager yesterday, and he told me that, you know, they don't have any attacks planned for Biden, but they said that if something organically comes up and he's in the position to need to defend, you know, Medicare for all or an anti-interventionist foreign policy, then he will. Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, they're the top two candidates right now. How far behind is Bernie Sanders from Joe Biden right now? behind by double digits. He is significantly behind and the race has kind of stayed that way since Biden jumped in. A lot of people, a lot of pundits thought that Biden would collapse as soon as he entered the race. But, you know, he really hasn't, despite gaffes that he's made and, and controversial comments that he's made, including, you know, the recent comments about working with segregationists. A poll just came out that showed that there was virtually no movement whatsoever in the polls, despite that. Holly Otterbein, national political reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. A lot of these young children come from places that you don't even want to know about, the way they've lived, the way they've been, uh, the way that the poverty that they grew up in. I'm very concerned. Uh, And they're much better than they were under President Obama by far. And we're trying to get the Democrats to agree to really give us some humanitarian aid, humanitarian money. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you for coming back on. We wanted to follow up on this story we were just talking about yesterday about immigration and things with uh, the raids being postponed for a couple of weeks. We started talking about this Border Patrol station in Clint 
where there was 300 migrant children kind of living in deplorable conditions there. After all of that happened, the acting head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, John Sanders, said he is resigning. He didn't give an exact reason that this was it, but I mean, the uproar over what happened there, you just can draw the line to it right away. So what do we know about Commissioner John Sanders resigning? He'd only been with CBP for about a year. He was actually hired as the chief operating officer. So his job was basically to integrate technology and, and management approaches across the agency. And then suddenly he's elevated to acting commissioner when now acting secretary Kevin McAleenan was elevated. And internally, they changed the order in which people would rise to the top. So he became the second in charge effectively, meaning when Mr. McAleenan left, it was his job. But he was never an operations official. He was not a border operations, border security career official in that capacity the way Mr. McLean was on the blue side, the custom side of the House before taking over as commissioner. The president had received a lot of flack for not having so many confirmed positions within his administration. Uh, He said that having acting heads of departments helped him be more nimble. It helped do whatever he wanted to do just a little bit easier. But we've been rolling through acting heads of different departments now for a long time. Is this impacting these departments? They don't have somebody permanent at the helm. It just seems like things are kind of going haywire all over the place. It does have an impact. And there was a similar situation in the Obama administration where there was no confirmed CBP commissioner for several years from the Bush administration into actually the the beginning of the second term of the Obama administration, and that caused problems. The problems are are wide and varied. As an acting, you don't always have the authority to make broad changes. You just kind of keep the ship running, but you're not implementing new strategies or approaches. You're getting direction from on high, but you're not in charge. I mean, you're in charge, but sort of, right? Right. And in this case, you now have an acting ICE director, an acting CBP commissioner, an acting USCIS director. USCIS is the agency that is sort of the the customer service side, if you will, of the legal immigration system. And you have an acting secretary. So there's no confirmed official left, with the exception of Mr. McLean, who was confirmed as commissioner, but he's it. And he's now in an acting capacity as secretary. So there's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of discussion of what happens next. Who takes over the helm of CBP? Will there be an internal shuffle? We've seen these shuffles before, and this appears to be yet another one just a few months after the last big one. Yeah. And with immigration being such a hot issue for the president, it only makes sense to have really put an extra effort to confirm these people and, and, and not leave these department heads in acting roles only. Let's go back to what was happening at that Border Patrol station in Clint, Texas. As we said, they moved out about 300 migrant children. They've since moved back about 100 children back to there just because there is not enough space anywhere else, really. Right. And a CBP official said that effectively they, they moved the 100 kids back because there was now room and there was it was OK to do so. It's more secure in their view than the temporary tent facilities in the city of El Paso. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about that. CBP has said the allegations, the mysterious or egregious allegations, the kids didn't have access to food. This official objected to that and said he, he didn't buy it, were his words, that he himself had at times gone to McDonald's and gotten meals for migrants himself. Hard to reconcile that with what the reports were of kids not having food, not having access to shower facilities and so on. But this official reiterated what we've known for a long time. These facilities were not built for, certainly not for children, but really not even for adults to be overnight. It was supposed to be a rare occasion that somebody was held overnight. If they were perhaps taken into custody in the middle of the night, they would be there through the evening and then generally return to Mexico. Back in the original days of these stations, it it was almost, as we discussed last time, almost exclusively 
single men from Mexico. Now you have children in and these facilities, it's no joke. They're not built for this. They don't have beds, showers. There's no cafeteria. There's a small toilet and a sink in a holding cell. And that's it. Yeah. A bench, maybe. Tough for any and adult. Then, but when you're dealing with children, you know, it's a whole different story at that point. Right. There's very specific regulations on how children are to be detained by the U.S. government, immigrant children. And it goes back to this 1980s era case, Flores, which is now the, known as the Flores Agreement because in 1996, 10 years after the case started, it was settled. It's been you know, relitigated and continues to be relitigated as we speak. That was part of the review that, that lawyers and doctors and so on went in to talk to these children and oversee that and ensure that they're being held in compliance with this rule. Of course, there's been some statements from government attorneys in that case that they're not required to provide soap and toothbrushes in order to keep children in a safe, sanitary, and secure environment. Obviously, immigrant advocates object to that claim, and we'll see what happens as the case continues to move forward. What's the status of this border aid package that is being worked on in Congress right now? I've seen that some House Democrats plan to make some last-minute changes. It's a $4.5 billion package of humanitarian assistance. This is what all these departments are clamoring for. They need more money to expand what they can do for the migrants that are being held there. But what do we know about where this bill is at right now? It's once again up in the air. There's been some rumbling from the White House that the president might veto it because it limits how the money can be spent in some versions. So the president wants to be able to spend money on security and do the things he wants to do, including building a wall and house. Democrats have have objected to that, and they would like money to be used specifically for the care and holding of these children and families. That's the largest group of people who are crossing the border illegally right now are unaccompanied children and families with children. And so you have a record high of children in custody and a record high of children crossing the border. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We clearly are being careful about saying this is because people have used their phone, but it is certainly because of it it is likely it's this posture. Joining us now is Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. Last week, there was this moment where a headline grabbed everybody's attention. Horns are growing on young people's skulls. Phone use is to blame, research suggests. And everybody was like, what am I? You know, I use my phone all the time. Am I going to? Get horns and, and, you know, first off, you're thinking it's going to be horns on the front of your head coming out through your forehead or something like that. But you read into the story and it, it's, it was a story that came from the Washington Post, basically linking cell phone usage to an uptick in young people developing bone spurs in the back of their necks. The story is you lean forward to look at your phone so much that it, your skeleton is literally changing because you're changing your posture. Tell us a little bit more about what the story said. Yeah, it wasn't, unfortunately, any kind of devil horns or anything protruding from the front of your head. It was this idea that people were developing these bone spurs sort of at the very base of their head where their neck started. And as you were saying, it's this idea that if you're leaning forward, then you're going to be putting all of this pressure on your neck. The thing is, is the studies didn't really actually show that at all. You know, if you look at them, they're not talking about phones in any way. They're not measuring or, or studying the effect of phone use. Basically, they did this research on the presence of bone spurs in x-rays in these participants 
participants. And then there was conjecture that it may be related to phone use, but that's not something that we can say definitively at all. What's more is the Washington Post has since updated the story and they've noted that some of the researchers are actually involved in a business venture that they did not disclose to the journal that they published this story in, which is typically required for publishing research that actually conflicts and and sort of adds a little bit of an ethical quandary to this whole situation. Yeah, one of those researchers is a chiropractor and he has some product, some type of pillow to make your posture better and everything while you sleep, basically. Right. And so that has definitely raised a lot of questions about his motivations. And obviously you can declare that you have a conflict of interest and that's sort of part of the process of science. But the fact it wasn't declared and the fact that this story is being represented as something it just fundamentally is not has raised a lot of people's red flags. And that's why we wanted to actually look into, you know, how do you hold your cell phone in a way that's best for your body? Obviously, technology is all around us. We use it every day. And there's been tons of stories about how technology is affecting our body. Uh, we've heard stories about text neck and text thumb. And, you know, that's text neck is basically the same thing, you know, constantly looking down. So it, it making your posture worse. The text thumb, it's basically like a form of carpal tunnel syndrome because you're texting so much. These stories are popping up all over the place. You guys spoke to some physical therapists about this. What are they saying? How much is technology and your phone in particular really damaging your posture? I would say the main message is that we can all calm down. I spoke with Eric Robertson, who's a physical therapist and a spokesperson for the American Physical Therapy Association. And he was basically like, we have always treated posture as a boogeyman. It's one of those things where anytime anything feels wrong in our body or, you know, something even feels wrong in society, like these fears around technological change, we always come back to posture. But in reality, posture is not as important as it seems. There's very little evidence that posture correlates with pain. And similarly, there is no such thing as perfect posture. We all have these ideas that, you know, come from childhood that we should be standing like ballerinas, you know, and our moms are always telling us to stand up straighter. And, you know, that's not the worst advice. We should definitely be conscientious of our body and where it is in space, but there's no such thing as like this ideal way of standing or using your phone. Yeah. And it's pretty true that sometimes using your phone, looking at your phone in a weird position, you can get pretty uncomfortable. But the best thing that you can do really is just not stay in that position for too long. Move around, readjust, get comfortable again. Basically, every 15 to 20 minutes, you should be readjusting yourself. The best posture is the one you don't hold for very long is I think the thing that physical therapists would say. So that 15 or 20 minutes thing I think is a really great number to drill into your head, right? Because it's the optimal time to to move around and change your position. It's also the recommendation for when you should give your eyeballs a break. If you spend, like I do, most of your day staring at a tiny computer screen, the suggestion is that at every 15 or 20 minute interval, you look up into the middle distance just to sort of give your eyes some respite from that really close contact with a screen. So in a lot of ways, you know, setting a 20 minute reminder or getting one of those smartwatches that buzzes when you've been sitting for too long is a great self-intervention and a way of using technology to better your life instead of making you fearful that you're developing horns. So then what's the final word on these skull horns? Uh, Nothing to worry about. I mean, these bone spurs were occurring in a pretty limited sample size of people. You'd have to study this for a lot longer term to really draw any type of conclusion out of this. The main thing is that none of the people seem to be symptomatic. In other words, their bone spurs aren't hurting them. So if you have horns and you don't know it, you're just fine. (laughs) Eleanor Covens, assistant editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.